Hey everyone, this is Jenny. Welcome to Mommy's Crime Time. And this is our final episode in the Letters from Christopher overall synopsis and review of the book by Sherilyn Cadle. In this episode, we're going to be covering chapters 22 through chapters, um, I believe it's 28, which is the like his letters and also the epilogue and the forward from Christopher. Um, to start out again, this book was released in 2019, Letters from Christopher, The Tragic Confessions of the Watts Family Murders. It is um, by Sherilyn Cadle. If you haven't read it, again, you're probably going to have a hard time finding it. It's been pulled from pretty much everywhere due to plagiarism. The book is, I mean, it's a lot of repetitive information, but overall it is a good read to get the third confession from Christopher. If you have not already listened to episode one and two, I would definitely recommend that you do so to get insight as to what we're talking about and to wrap things up. Um, the first chapter we're gonna start with today is chapter 22. Chapter 22 goes over the evidence of the case. Again, this chapter is pretty repetitive. It's things that you can find in the discovery um, it doesn't really go over a whole lot. Basically, all it really talks about is that there were three searches of the home, one by the Frederick PD, one by the CDI, and then there was also a canine search of the home. They talk about how he consented to every search of his home, which obviously he would consent to that. Why wouldn't he? Because he knew there was, or he thought there was nothing there they were going to find. Um, they also went inside the home with luminol. If you don't know what luminol is, it is the substance that you can spray to reveal blood, even if it's been washed away. And there was no blood really located in the home. So that kind of went with the story that, you know, he didn't do anything wrong because there was no blood. Although truthfully, strangling or smothering would not leave any blood. The next thing that it talks about is the observation of the scene, which was the home. They talk about how there were no signs of forced entry, how the home was very well kept. All the doors were closed. There was no sign again of forced entry. Then they talk about the scene processing. She again goes over the luminol and that they didn't find anything showing blood. But while they were searching the home, the police officer observed something in the kitchen trash course they're going to go through your trash. They go through everything in your home when they search it. And this is when the police officer found the bed sheets and pillowcases. If you will remember, Chris took Shanann to the site where he buried her at Survey in a sheet. Well, he left the sheet at the location. That was saw before they were even able to recover her body. This is one of the things that let investigators know that something was going on there before he even confessed. So what did Chris Watts do? He said, oh, well, I guess I'm missing one sheet. So maybe I'll just take the rest of them and throw them away. But he left it in the trash can. So the bedding was buried beneath other items of trash and it showed it was the flat sheet and matching pillowcases. Now there were stains noted on those pillowcases. If you remember, Shanann did not wash off her makeup that night. She came straight home from the airport got straight in bed. If you look at the evidence photos, you will see that there are definite stains on the pillow. It almost looks like her face. Like just imagine if you don't take off your mascara and you get upset and you cry 
and then you bury your head in your pillow, you will see those black marks on that pillow. And that is what you can see. So it kind of goes along with the story that he strangled her while she was laying on her stomach with her face in the pillow. Do we know that for sure? No. Do we know anything that Chris Watts says to be completely true? Absolutely not. Next, they talk about what they collected from the survey site, which we all know there were two plastic trash bags. If you remember, Chris used those trash bags to cover Shanann's head and feet when he transported her, according to him, to the site so that the girls wouldn't see her. They found the gray and white sheet that matched the sheets that they found in the trash, and it had red stains on it, and they were covered in dirt, and it was placed in a dry room locker. This also contradicts his second confession, where he said that Shanann had not given birth when he put her in the hole. In his third confession in this book, he does say she had, but the fact that she was wrapped in the sheet and there was blood on it, it proves that she had already given birth to Nico before he buried her. They also found the rake head and rake handle. He broke the rake while he was trying to clear the area to bury Shanann. He wasn't even smart enough to take it away or, or like move it. He left the rake head and the handle both at the site. They also found, unfortunately, hair on the east tank. The hair on that east tank hatch belonged to Bella where he put her into the oil battery. Then they go on to talk about the evidence collected from Shanann. They talk about her underwear, which were a blue thong style, mostly see-through, covered in dirt. She owned a shirt, white on top, purple on bottom. It appeared to have a heart logo, and it was also covered in dirt. She owned a black bra. That was also covered in dirt, and it was also placed in a dry locker. They also did oral swabs of Celeste and Bella, and swabs from their hands, especially on Bella and Shanann. I guess they were looking for any DNA evidence, but let's be real, guys. They had been in these oil tanks and in the ground for days. The fact that you could think that any evidence such as DNA would have survived is pretty far-fetched, especially being in crude oil for days. They talk about items that were not taken by the CBI were transported back to the Frederick Police Department and checked into evidence. So they also, on the 15th, requested an officer to secure the doors hatch hood and fuel door of Shanann's Lexus and they took it and had it impounded so her vehicle was actually stored in like a warehouse but Chris Watts truck was not stored in an indoor warehouse so the rainstorm they had could have potentially damaged any evidence or DNA that may have been on the shovel and other items in his truck chapter 23 is reflections from Christopher in this chapter, he basically talks about his relationship with Shanann, how he looks back on things at this point in time. Um, honestly, it's, it's things that he said throughout the book that she's just going over again. But she says that he told her that he knows that him and Shanann were not meant for each other. And he said that he's afraid that if he says that, people will think that he is blaming Shanann, but he's not. He's just saying they were different people with their own views and personalities. So he says he wasn't true to himself when he met her. Which, let's be real, guys. You were together for all these years, eight years. You didn't have any issues in your marriage or with your wife, honestly. Never complained about her until you met your mistress. Don't buy it. He goes on to talk about how the wedding day was the happiest day of his life. I find it's kind of odd that you say that you realize that she was not like your soulmate and that you weren't meant for each other, but you talk about how your wedding day was the best day of your life. 
This kind of contradicts. He then says that it was not on, he was not in his mind or, you know, it wasn't in his hands, but he was being controlled by something evil when he did this. Again, he's going back to blaming some demonic force or evil or darkness that had surrounded him. He then goes on to talk about the house that he did not need, nor did he want such a big house, that he was raised in a very small ranch home and he was happy and not house poor. I don't know if you've ever heard anyone say house poor, but around here where I live, house poor means you have a house and that's all you can afford. You can't afford to do anything else because the cost of your house is so much. And this is what he says about the house they had together. He said this house was totally her idea. He knew they couldn't afford it, but he did his best to make her happy. He says the house payments, again, this is repetitive. We've heard this before in the book. The house payments were $2,800 a month and $500 that was insurance, not including the home association fees. And he says this was a huge stressor for him. He felt like when he got paid, he watched the bank balance go down. He never had an extra dollar, but he was always working. He said the house was built for them exactly how they wanted it. I have a hard time with this. If you knew you couldn't afford this home, if you knew that it was too much, why did you never voice these opinions? You've somehow become such a man for Nikki. Why couldn't you be that for your wife? Who knows? He talks about how he, you know, he had kept telling Nikki that he slept in the basement every night when Shanann was home. One thing I have a really hard time with this is the fact that Nikki, in her interview, she talked about how he would always do this and this with the girls and get them ready for bed and feed them, and then she would talk to him. Mind you, pretty much the entire time they were in a relationship, the girls were in North Carolina. This somewhat hints at a relationship that was longer than six weeks. He also told Nikki every night he slept in the basement. He did not sleep in the bed with Shanann unless Shanann was not home. Now, in this book, he says, he did sleep in the basement some, but only at the very end after they got back from North Carolina. But if you remember, they got back from North Carolina on, I believe, the 7th of August, and Shanann left on, like, the 10th. So, what, three nights is all he slept in the basement? He talks about how their communication had been broken for the last five to six years, but he does admit that's his fault, and he blames himself for that because he did nothing to try to fix it. So he talks about how he would try to talk to her and she would just flip through her iPad and say, oh, were you talking to me? Again, he pretends to be the submissive man that she just didn't love him enough, so he had to cheat. Sorry guys, but if you're a man, it's your job to speak up. It's your job to advocate for your marriage. It's your job to say how you feel and try to work on your relationship. And if he wasn't willing to do that, you can't put all the blame on someone who is dead and no longer here to defend herself. He goes on to talk about how he had been thinking about killing his family. He didn't want to, but he knew he was going to. He didn't realize he was going to fear or feel anger because of this. And he didn't know what anger felt like. Again, we've talked about this before. He claims that he's never been angry in his life. In your 30s, if there's no chance that you've ever felt anger, there is something seriously wrong with you. Guys, I was angry like five times today and I'm a stay-at-home mom. If you don't ever get angry in your life, there's definitely a problem. Or do you get angry and you do you hide it? Were you taught to hide it? Are you afraid of showing your emotions? Whatever it is, there's something there that doesn't add up. 
He talks about how he knew something was controlling him, a feeling of darkness. Again, here we go. He said he started to kind of blame Nikki, but he didn't blame Nikki because she was also a victim. But he says that whatever took him over was a demon, but he doesn't mean that in a religious sense. What other kind of demons are there? He goes on to talk about the wonderful and fabulous Nicole Kessinger. One of the things that he absolutely loved about her was that he could just be himself. At times, Shanann had actually told him that she wanted a man that would stand up for himself and not be pushed around. He asked himself, why couldn't I be this woman for Shanann? Because you were weak. I mean, how could you... Basically, Nikki was projecting whatever he wanted her to be to make him happy. Of course, it was all blissful. You were only together for a short amount of time. It kills me. Next, we're going to go to chapter 24. Chapter 24 is the plea, arrests, and sentencing. One thing I have a hard time with reading the title to this chapter is it says the arrests, plural. Chris was not arrested several times. He was arrested once. He was the only person arrested. So why did Cato put arrests? Again, poor grammar, very poorly written book. In this chapter, she talks about, you know, how, you know, he was arrested and photographed and blah, 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 blah. Same stuff over and over again. Then she goes to talk about good and evil and how evil can present itself in different forms. Here we go with the darkness. But I will say some of the things that she talks about, I have researched. I have seen on YouTube. Some of them are strange. Some of them have been debunked. My advice would be to look for yourself. See what you see. What you don't see, make up your own opinions. She talks about strange things connected to the story. Like one evening, not long after the murders, the police were called and they saw a woman walking around the garage. So, of course, the police responded and the garage lights were on when the police responded. So, of course, they come inside, weapons drawn. They're going through the house and they're saying, if anyone's in here, make yourself known. But when they open the garage door, the lights are off. The only way out of that garage was through the garage door, which was not been opened, and the door back into the home. Funny, definitely. Another evening around 9.05, they were called to the house regarding an unknown person going up to the home. When they got there, the neighbor next door said he had a video of a woman pulling, you know, walking up to the home, and that large black SUV had stopped. Police said the woman could not be seen leaving the residence. The garage lights come on. They have been off. As if she had entered, but there was no one there. They searched the house and found no one. They turned off all the lights and locked all the doors. This was a time that was actually kind of debunked that they said it was a member of Chris Watts' defense team that had went to the home. So I'm not sure if I put much stock in this one. On September 21st, they got another message and it said that the back door of the home was open at Shanann Watts' home. The police walked the perimeter. All doors and windows were secure. No sign of forced entry. At 8.50, another call came in. The lights were on and had not been earlier. The officers responded. They searched the residence again. There were lights on, but they did not see anything bothered. Sherilyn Cadle goes on to say, research shows that demons often play with lights and electric things. Now, we can believe that. Maybe this weird demon that possessed Chris was still in the home, or maybe... 
just maybe, if you believe this sort of thing, it's the spirits of his wife and daughters who he killed that are still in that home. I'll leave that up to you. She goes on to talk about how his mother was on a quest to find out what really happened. And they had a very, very difficult time accepting that he was taking this plea. The family felt like his um, attorneys weren't doing him right. They should have told him not to take this plea. If you're not familiar with the plea, he pled guilty to three counts of first-degree murder, two counts of murder of a child under 12, um, one count of unlawful termination of a pregnancy, and I believe it's two counts of, um, or three counts of tampering with a corpse. Either way you look at it, he ended up with five life sentences plus 82 years in prison. So, he got a, quite a sentence. He told his family that he was pleading guilty to all of the murders for a reason, but he refused to give them details. So they had no idea why he pled guilty. I feel like they probably knew why he pled guilty. He was guilty. There's no way that anyone in their right mind could have believed that Shanann killed her children. Sorry, it's not believable. I don't care if his mom did not like her or whatever. It's not plausible that she would have killed her children all because he said he wanted a divorce. She would have left him, packed his stuff, threw him out, and went on with her life. She's that kind of woman. So basically, the state of Colorado would give a life sentence to someone who murders another individual, but actually the person that begged to not have the death penalty of all people was Shanann's mother, Sandy. She was the biggest advocate to not let him have the death penalty. A lot of people don't understand that, but basically she just says, you know, it's not our place to kill someone else, you know, so... She didn't want that to happen, and plus she loved him. He was her son-in-law. Now, Chris says, had it not come down the way it did, if he had not been arrested as soon as he did, and he had not, you know, he, he would have decided to plead guilty anyway. Everyone that believes that, hold your breath. He also, again, admits, which we've gone over 5,000 times in this book because it's very repetitive, the murders did not happen because of a rage. He said once they had, got, they had not gotten the evidence to arrest him, he had already planned on confessing to the murder. So even before he confessed, even before they had evidence, he was already going to confess once again. Everyone who believes that, hold your breath. But he says it was really hard for him at that point because he did not feel remorse, but he had to pretend like he did. So the days after you murdered your pregnant wife, killing your firstborn or your first son who never got a chance to be born, and your daughters, you felt no remorse. This is something I cannot wrap my mind around. She then goes over to talk about the plea, the written waiver. I mean, it's the entire shebang. Like, she just outlines it all. She goes over the agreement of, you know, the charges of first-degree murder, which there were three, two charges of first-degree murder and a child under 12, unlawful termination, tampering with deceased body. There's three counts of that. The, the court also ordered that he would have to pay restitution also, that would cover the burial expenses for Shanann, Bella, Celeste, and Nico. Let's be real. He has no money. How's he going to pay this back? Then they go, she outlines every count, you know, saying that he acted with deliberation intent, and she goes over that. I feel like this was a little much. She didn't have to put each article and each count in here. It's public record. You could have seen that. You could look this up anywhere. I just feel like it was kind of filling a space. 
But she said that Christopher hadn't thought very far ahead when he offered the deal to the DA. He says his head was mixed up and he was living in a fog. Of course you would say that. So, count one, first degree murder, life in prison. Count two, first degree murder, life in prison. Count three, first degree, pri first degree murder, life in prison. Count four, murder of a child under 12, life in prison. Count five, murder of a child under 12, life in prison. Unlawful termination of a pregnancy, 46 years. Tamper with a deceased corpse, corpse, three charges of that, each carrying 12 years. The judge said that in his 17 years on the bench, this was the worst and most brutal case he had ever seen. And he gave Chris the maximum that the law would allow other than death. Chapter five, 25 is the family. Again, this is one of those, you know, repetitive things talking about the family. We've already talked about the family back when it says, you know, the what side of the story. We read that earlier in the book. So this is kind of repetitive. Don't really feel like it is necessary. But hey, I mean, it's Sherilyn Cato's book. She can do whatever she wants with it. Chapter four pretty much covered these same things. But he talks about Shanann doing good at selling Thrive, making sixty dollars to $70,000 a year plus the car fee or, you know, allowance. He talks about how she was very materialistic, but she was also very driven. He says he was not, he did not need anything besides necessities. He never told her no or argued. He talks about Bella and how she was timid, but she was most like her daddy at four years old. And it's very heartbreaking to read this next part. Cindy Watts, which is Chris's mom, said that it was really sad because Bella wanted long hair, but it would just not grow. And it's heartbreaking that her hair was caught on the hatch door as he pushed her little head through that eight-inch hole. She'd always wanted long hair. She had this cute little pixie cut. The little bit of hair she had was ripped out in that hatch door. If that's not telling to what kind of evil person could do this. I don't know what is. Talks about how Bella had some sort of sixth sense. Even though she was a child, she must have felt like something awful was going to happen. I don't really know what he means by this. Maybe it's because, you know, he she was standoffish to him. He talks about putting her in the truck and how she must have been so scared. She must have been, you know, terrified watching him kill her sister and knowing that he had killed her mother watching him drop her sister in the crude oil tanks and that her last words were again daddy no she was supposed to start school the very day that she lost her life that's horrible they talk about Cece and how life was a party for her and she had no fears she took her very first trip to the beach just a week before she was murdered goes on to talk about Shanann having Chris's baby boy and I don't understand how any man could kill his wife I mean, that's bad enough, but to kill your wife that you know was carrying your very firstborn son, I don't understand that. It kills me. It wasn't enough for him that, you know, he killed his son, but he says that even to this day, he still grieves that loss. Don't find that very believable. He talks about how bad he feels with the Rizek family because they never got to say goodbye. The bodies could not be shown. The crude oil that the girls were in and the decomposition of Shannon and the girls made it impossible to give them a funeral. If you didn't already know this, um, the girls couldn't be flown, I believe. Now, they, if they were flown, it's because they didn't meet certain standards. But the girls had to be put in a larger casket than they would need. 
and it had to be wrapped with a special sealant because of the possible seepage of the crude oil from the bodies. It was highly flammable. Their bodies were likely to combust. They could bring down an airliner. So transporting the bodies was extremely hard. This is something heartbreaking. They never got to say goodbye. Chapter 26 is prison life. Again, very repetitive. Talks about how he went to prison and he was threatened and yelled at. And that he was in this state of trauma and nothing made sense to him. But, you know, he still felt this dark spirit inside of him. He talks about how in December he was handcuffed and they were taken to the prison. And there was one very horrible prison in Colorado. And he just knew that's where they were going to take him. But he knew if that's where he went, that must be where God want him to go. But luckily for him, they took him to Wisconsin and put him in the Dodge Correctional Institute. He says the food's tolerable, that he craves things like ice cream or pizza, and of all things, Shanann's spaghetti sauce. He can't understand where things went all wrong, why he didn't think it was wrong. He realizes he had everything and lost everything, and it's his fault he threw it away. He does not talk about his crime with anyone in prison. He won't even respond to a letter if you write him about his crime. He talks about how he's in his cell for the most part of the day. But, you know, he has recreational time. When it's good weather, he can go outside for 40 minutes. Yay, Chris. He says that most of his days are spent reading. And that he doesn't believe he's received any mail from his former mistress, Nikki. And he hopes he won't. Let's be real. We all know he hopes he will. That's BS. He says he hopes that she's able to find peace and move on with her life. But he would like for her to know that he's sorry. Maybe she should say sorry because I have a feeling that she was more complicit to what went on than she lets on. Just my opinion. He says he'd give anything in the world to have his life back. He also talks about how he signed everything over to the Ruzek family. When they were trying to settle the estate, you know, Shanann's belongings and these things. He talks about how Frank, Shanann's dad, said, thank you, Chris. And he replied, you know, thank you, love you guys. And Frank responded, love you. Is this true? I don't know. But he says that it was such a, a profound moment for him that he went back to his cell. He just cried and cried and cried. Talks about how Rondi and Cindy, his parents, received his wallet that he had on him at the time of his arrest. And coincidentally, how much money was in it? Oh, $13. Chapter 27. Christopher's true and final oh, confession and his testimony. Again, we have already heard pretty much everything that we're going to hear in this chapter earlier in the book. So it is very repetitive. She says that he felt alone. There was no one in his life. And he knew he had done this to himself. He knew again there was no doubt there was this evil, dark spirit inside of him that he was dealing with. Then she decides to say that some things may seem repetitive because of the order in which she told her during research. Well, how about you put them in chronological order and you make this book flow and have sequence rather than bouncing back and forth. She says that it may be through this book. You can put the puzzle pieces together and this is a way for him to get it all out. And he says there's nothing for him to tell after this. Once again, if you believe that, Stand on your head. Talks about, again, how he did not share these things with the FBI. 
He writes a letter to Frank, Sandy, and Frankie, Shanann's parents and brother, basically apologizing, saying they must hate him. He still considers them family, and he knows they may never forgive him, but he is just so sorry for everything that happened. He goes on to talk about how he's never had a psychological exam in a letter to Cheryl and Cadle, that he didn't do it because it may have hurt his case early on. He goes on to talk about the sale of the house and how it been pushed back. It was pushed back because of the civil case against him. He says it has nothing to do with investigation. But this book was written last year. Let's be real. It was supposed to have been pushed back, that auction, to July 17th. We are now February, what, 11th, 10th, 11th of 2020. The auction still has not happened. Why? Is it an investigation? I tend to think maybe there's something we don't know. Maybe there is. Maybe there's not. But why is the sale of this house being pushed back and pushed back and pushed back? He then goes on to talk a lot about, you know, his religious beliefs and, you know, dying out to Christ daily. All of that. I'll let you guys read that. I'm not going to go in depth on that for you. I'll let you kind of look into that. Um, the next thing is he talks about coming face to face with this darkness, you know, that was pursuing him. And basically he says, you know, when he first went into the, the jail at the Weld County Jail that the officer slammed the door on him and said, good luck. So he saw this two figures in his room. One's a female, one's a male. He realizes this is grandfather and grandmother on his, you know, mother's side. But he closes his eyes, they go away, blah, blah, blah. He says this is when he realizes he had a demon inside of him. Out of the 20 cells, 90% were screaming at him, telling him to go kill himself. During this time is when he started reading the Bible, when he finished the Bible in about two weeks. He talks about how on November 5th, his family came out to see him, and he was allowed to talk to them on a video monitor for 30 minutes each and tell them that he was going to plead guilty, which none of them seemed to understand. He also says, how does a person look their mother in the eyes who is hurting more than can be imagined and tell them you are guilty of killing their precious granddaughters, but of no explanation as to the reasons why? Yes, you did kill their granddaughters, but why does he mention killing Shanann? You also killed your wife and unborn child. It's kind of telling that he doesn't mention that part. He says that he had thought about reading Psalm 33, 13 through 22 at sentencing, but he decided that he better not. If you haven't read it, I mean, you could go read it. Honestly, it's basically about, you know, that God is our hope and he's our shield and in, our, in him our hearts rejoice and that he's with us and we put our hope in him. Obviously, another one of these, you know, oh, I found the Lord. I'm a, I'm a saved man. The rest of it goes on to say that he didn't put as much effort into his marriage as he should have been. He was putting effort to be the best dad, but that he didn't focus enough on Shanann. Um, he'll never forget her walking down the aisle and looking flawless and seeing her look into his eyes. She walked up to him and said, breathe, and literally took his breath away. That love never died. But the focus went towards the kids. How can you say the love never died when you said that you weren't in love with her anymore, you didn't connect with her, and you killed her? He contradicts himself so much. Is he that confused in his own head, or is he just tripping over his own lies? 
He can say with certainty that he loves Shanann and always will. That he had to be, you know, very careful and he had an uneasiness in every step he took around her, but he would never communicate that to her. Maybe had he put the effort in to communicate with her like he did with Nicole Kessinger, maybe he could have saved his marriage. He says, if you're asking if there's anything I haven't talked about in regards to Nikki, honestly, I'm not sure what I've said and what I haven't, but this is what I know. She had a small group of friends she didn't tell me about. They were in some dark things. What is he referring to? Cheryl and Cato chose to leave this chapter out of the book. Will we ever know what he's talking about? Is it true? Is it BS? Who knows? He says she took medications. Apparently she was bipolar. And he says that on July 4th when he left her home and went home because Shanana called him 10 times. That was the first time that she realized she was not number one in his life. He said that he told her that him and Shanann were trying to have a baby before he met her and Nikki flipped out. Nikki vehemently just denies this in her letter to the police that she submitted in September where she says that he told her they were not trying to conceive a baby. But I actually tend to believe Chris more on this one. She told him that she got mad at him because she thought she could give him a son and when he told her that him and his wife were trying, it made her upset because she wanted to have that first with him. Again, this chick is obsessed with firsts. When he got to North Carolina, he told her he wouldn't be able to call her, only text. She got mad. Why are you with her? I thought you want to spend time with family, blah, 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 blah. Meanwhile, she had told him right before he left, you know, fix your marriage. Meanwhile, she sent him naked pictures and harassing him about being with his wife. Mixed message. He want, Nikki wanted to make more time for her no matter what. And he talks again about the oxycodone that he had given Shanann the very first night. Again, repetitive, repetitive, repetitive. How he saw Nikki when he got back. He got the key. Um, that was a day that he realized he had to do something. He couldn't have her and his family. He said Nikki and him talked about future plans and apartments that she had found. He told her main objective was to get him away from his family, obviously. She started telling her friends. That's when he got rid of Facebook. Again, a lot of this is repeated stuff that we have already heard in previous chapters of the book. But he does say that he longed to feel, you know, his family in his arms again. Read one more bedtime story. Hold his son. Sing in the car. Be a dad and a husband one more time. He talks about how, you know, I guess after he pled and everything and all of this stuff or whatever. One night he rolled over in his bunk and cried out to the Lord to take the pain away. And at this point, you know, he told the God he was giving himself to him. He says he cried until his, you know, he thought his chest was going to come out. He could feel the pain. He knew a demon had came out of him and he was forgiven. He says he'd love to be a free man, but he does not deserve to be. And he needs to pay his price for what he did to those who loved him. Obviously. Again, he writes more letters to Sherilyn and she outlines those letters. Um, he talks about how he had no hard feelings against Shanann's friend, Nicole Atkinson, that she was only there just, you know, looking out for Shanann, that he had no hard feelings against her. He talks about how the canine dogs went crazy in the basement and he cannot think of any reason why. He only remembers that maybe, possibly, he went to the basement to get trash bags, but that's it. He then later retracts his statement and says, Oh, no, I didn't give her the oxycodone the night I killed her. I only gave it to her once. 
He said he never saw his marriage as a struggle until he met Nikki. And he can't say that Shanann was his soulmate, but that they fit and he loved her. He says that she may not have been my soulmate, but she's my baby girl, my boo, my wife, and my friend, and I love her with all my heart. And guys, that one statement really hit me in the gut because my husband and me always have this joke together. We say, oh, you're my boo. And just reading him say that, it just kind of hits you in the chest where you think they were a regular happy couple until this happened and you don't understand it and you can't wrap your mind around it and it just hit me because it makes me, it, it makes me relate to the fact that she didn't know what was going on. If she did know, maybe he did really love her. I don't know if he was possessed. I have a hard time with that, but it's just, it's going to hit you in the feels. Chapter 28 is where he writes letters to his family. I'm not going to read all of these. I mean, he writes to his mom, telling her happy birthday. Um, he writes to his dad, telling him happy birthday. And that he's not going to be defined by that one moment in time. He's still a dad, still a son, no matter what. Um, he writes scripture to his family. Now, on December 17, 2018, he wrote a letter to Shanann, Bella, Celeste, and Nico. Saying, I hope when you look down on me, you don't see the person that hurt you. But the person that loves you. I pray you say, there's my husband, there's my daddy. Guys, this hurts my heart. Is he sincere? Probably not. But does it hurt your heart? Yes. He tells Shanann she was so good to him, the whole relationship. And what will he do without her and the kids for the rest of his life? And that he would have rather chosen death over hurting them. I struggle with this because is he telling the truth? Either way, like I said, it still hurts your heart. He says he's sorry. His heart's broken into four pieces. He needs them to know that it wasn't him that morning that did such a terrible thing. He said that had he not gotten mixed up with the wrong people and allowed this dark spirit to enter his life, this would never have happened. Again, that dark spirit, the people he's around, apparently he's talking about Nikki. She obviously was not the best influence, but who are we to judge? On Christmas Day, he writes another letter to Shavan, Bella, Cece, and Nico. And basically, um... He tells them that he has a hole in his heart, knowing that he can't be with them, and it's unrepairable. He writes a letter to Bella for her birthday. Sorry if you hear my voice get kind of cracky or sad, but this breaks my heart. He talks about how he wishes he could sing her a song or read her a story. He calls Celeste his little rocket ship, and he remembers every picture of her picking her up from school. It hurts my heart, y'all. He writes to Nico saying he wish he could have met him. He would have been a great ball player and an awesome little brother. And that he loves him. Does he mean it? I don't know, guys. But either way, it still hurts your heart to read these things. I hope he feels remorse. I hope what he's saying is sincere. But either way, it is tragic. He writes to Shanann and says every time he closes his eyes, he sees them on their wedding day. And that she was an amazing mother and wife. And that he knows that she hears him when he prays. He writes to his dad on Father's Day. Um, the last letter he wrote to Sherilyn Cadle before the book went into print um, is where she's asking him to please, you know, make sure that she sends, he sends the prologue, you know, right away. 
This is the part where he talks about Christ giving yourself to the Lord and his testimony. Um, he says he had a beautiful life. He experienced beautiful love, but he let temptation steal it away. Darkness can restrain you from making decisions that you should. Darkness can rob you of everything you love. And darkness can blind you from everything you hold dear. It can destroy your soul. He says to those of you who know me because of this tragedy and have formed your opinions mostly negative, I don't blame you. But he wants people to realize that darkness can enter our lives in any form, person, activity, feeling, or thought, and jet us down a path we think is right, being blinded by evil, but at least a turmoil. He does his acknowledgments where he thanks his parents and sisters, some of his lovely, you know, pen pals, like a lady named Janelle, and talks to Cheryl and telling her thank you. Um, and of course, his Lord and Savior. The epilogue is where Sherilyn Cadle talks about how this journey was very, you know, surreal for her. It was a lot of emotions. It caused her to feel a lot of different things. One moment she liked him, the next she couldn't stand him because of what he did. She says that she'll never be the same because of it. Her heart has been pierced. That she can't imagine the pain that the Rizek family feels. And that there's been a lot of speculation about Nikki. And whether she had any part in murdering the family. She does not believe it. This is her opinion. My opinion is she had something or at least was complacent to something. But that's my opinion. Um, the family was not exactly happy with all of the way that she wrote this book. They would have liked to have told me how to write it, she said. But she went with her moral responsibility. She says the confusing thing was coming against how they wanted her to present Christopher not guilty. And they wanted her to blame Shanann, and she would not do that. She, at the very last thing the book says is, if someone like Christopher is capable of murder, and we know he was, we all need to wonder who lives amongst us. And the question is, why did Christopher do this? Why did he murder his entire family? And she says the answer is easy. It was his mistress, Nikki. He wanted to start fresh. Out of this entire book, guys, I'm telling you, this last chapter honestly pulled at my heartstrings the most. It was the most insightful into his mindset, what he was thinking, what he was saying. Again, was he being honest? Does he really feel remorse? I don't know. But you can't help but feel so many different emotions when you're reading these things. Because these children, this mother, this baby, they're all gone. And he knows he did it. And... Does he really feel bad for it? Does he really realize what he's missing? Or is he just really sorry that he's in prison? I will leave that up to you to decide. I'll let you decide how you feel about that. For me, I don't know how to feel about it. I want to believe he's a monster and evil. And likely he is. But at the end of the day, I feel like he was a weak, submissive coward. And he let others influence him. In every way, shape, and form. And when it wasn't Shanann that was telling him what to do, not purposely, but to keep him going, he went to Nikki and she was the dark, she was that dark spirit and she led him down that path. Does it make it right? No. But it's very hard to comprehend. I hope you guys have enjoyed listening to all three episodes. If you want to talk about it, comment, send me some messages. Let's talk about it. My next series is going to be over Nicole Kessinger, her deception, lies, and mistruths, and strange behavior.
Stay tuned for that. As always, have a great night. Thank you for listening to Mommy's Crime Time. Feel free to follow, subscribe, share. Thank you.